Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. We're here on episode 16 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and Dan and I are joined today by Ed Grasset and Christopher Willis of Grasset Legal, who represent the plaintiffs in Thomas versus Corey that was argued before the Illinois Supreme Court last week. Dan and I are, talked about, we argued, we did that too, but we talked about the case um, on episode 15, but we're fortunate enough to have Ed and Christopher join us today to talk further about the case and give us some insights as we have in some other cases with the advocates who've argued. Um, With that, let's get right into it. Uh, Christopher, why don't you tell us about the facts of the case, um, how it came that uh, a claim, a medical malpractice claim like this was made? Yeah, it's a case that uh, I think everybody on every side of it agrees is a really sad set of facts. Um, Justice Tice certainly said that. She did at, at the oral argument and up and down the case. I think no matter what position you take on it, people all agree that it's sad. Um, Monique was going into the hospital for a completely elective surgery, um, but it did involve general anesthesia. And so as part of the the standard procedure, they give a pregnancy test. Um, The initial pregnancy test um, came back as positive. The the urine test was positive. And so, um, you know, those are, those can be pretty sensitive and they want to, you know, make sure it's not uh, a false positive. So they do a blood test at that point. Um, it also showed low levels of the HGH hormone that indicates positivity. So at that point, they said, oh, you know, we're not real sure. Do an ultrasound. The ultrasound report showed, um, uh, p- p- could not rule out pregnancies and potentially an early term pregnancy. Um, I'm, so by early term, we talk about the first four weeks or so, something like that? Yes, exactly right. Um the uh, defendant physicians uh, made the determination that she was not pregnant, told her that she was not pregnant and that she should go ahead with the um, with the surgery, um, which she did. Did they tell her about this? I'm sorry. I just it, did they tell her about this um, this potentiality or what the results of the urine test were and then the blood test? And did they tell her about any of these kinds of things? No, they didn't. Um, they just told her you know, everything's fine. We're going ahead with the, we're going ahead with the surgery. Um, I mean, informed consent, I mean, imagine is a part of this case. That's why I ask. So how much did she know? Exactly. Um, And so then uh, after the surgery, I believe, Ed can correct me if I'm wrong. I believe she was back at the hospital for an infection. um, And at that point uh, it was then she learned for the first time that she was pregnant. They did another pregnancy test and she was told, oh, actually, you are pregnant. Did um, the infection arise out of the surgery or was it something separate from, from that? No, it was from the surgery. And how long was it after the after the surgery till she, had, she came back with this infection? I want to say two weeks, ballpark around there, going off the top of my memory there. Um, and so at that point, she was told, you know, because of the infection from the surgery and specifically because of, you know, the, the general anesthesia, you know, there's a reason why they give 
pregnancy test before you know they put anybody under that's you know contraindicated not not to be um, done with pregnant uh, patients. Um, they said you know the the fetus is is not going to be viable, um, and you know you should just um, you should terminate the pregnancy. Um, it's not really germane to any of the issues in the case, so it's not in the pleadings. But it's interesting to note that Monique herself is um, is not in favor of abortion. She is not, um, and she that's not something that she believes in. But she was told, you know, this is this this pregnancy can't go to term. You know, um, it was a danger. To, was it a danger? It was obviously, you know, a da- the child had a problem, but it, was it also a potential danger to her if she carried the baby to term? Yes. And so that's why they said, you know, we know that this isn't something that you really want to do, but it's not, you know, the medical recommendation is, is that this is what you need to do to protect yourself. Um, so she went ahead and did that. And obviously, you know, uh, once she found out um, from her records, you know, that there was indication that she was pregnant well before this. Um, and again, with the fact that this was a completely elective surgery. And they could have been rescheduled and done at any time. And that's when um, Monique and Chris reached out to Ed and we started looking into these issues um, and quickly got into um, and talked to some other attorneys who had had similar cases and, and quickly ran into this light case. And a lot of people told us, you know, you, you can't bring uh, you can't bring a, a wrongful death claim um, for the fetus in this case. And Ed and I looked at it and just said, that can't be the law. That's not that can't be the law. That can't be what they meant in this action. Uh, and started looking at, you know, kind of some gaps and not just what light said, but what light didn't say, um, issues that weren't specifically addressed in the light case. Um, and kind of thinking more broadly about how we could, um, how we could present this claim because we felt very strongly that what had happened here, um, was wrong, not just in terms of the medical malpractice that Monique herself suffered, but specifically with, um, with what had happened to, to the fetus. And that, uh, uh, and we'll talk about the light case uh, uh, later, but what was the alleged medical malpractice that you set forth in the 2622? The primary malpractice that's alleged is the, the, the having the knowledge, uh, you know, we alleged actual knowledge uh, on the doctors. The, uh, the 622 just talks about the the standard of care is that if she was potentially pregnant, that you would not uh, proceed with the surgery. Um, and it's essentially the proceeding with the surgery with, you know, following the three positive, uh, you know, urine dips and blood draws, and then an inconclusive uh, ultrasound that at that point, the, the surgery, there was no need to go ahead and it shouldn't have gone ahead but they made the conclusion that she was not pregnant and proceeded. Is there anything in the record that suggests why they were so insistent that this elective surgery take place immediately? No, no, not in the records itself. It just, they, they note she was negative for pregnancy and then proceed to surgery. Did, did, is there another potential source of the hormone other than pregnancy that could be, or another reason why this hormone might've shown up? other than pregnancy? There's, there's potential of that. And they've made issue of the, the defendants have made issue of that. In, in this case, procedurally, we've never made it past the pleading stage. Sure. We've done no discovery. We've never even gotten to the written discovery stage, right? So we have her records. We know what's, what's in there. 
they have her records because they're the they were the the, the physicians that that worked on uh, operated on her. Uh, but we've never gotten to discovery to to really flesh out any of those uh, issues. But they the defendants have made issue that of of some claim that she had been taking some diet pill that might have had something to do with it. The um, can you Christopher? Can you talk to us about the? You mentioned briefly um, the when you guys got the case, you looked at the statute. Um, and we talked about the statute on on episode 15, but why don't you talk about uh, 740 ILCS 180-2.2, which is what this case is about and and what uh, whatever it means is going to determine whether you guys can proceed past this motion to dismiss. Tell us about that statute. Yeah, that's exactly right. It is really a case about what does that statute mean. Uh, there's three paragraphs in the statute, and I don't think anybody who's looked at it would say that it's a particularly well-written or clear statute. Uh, not at all, and it doesn't even have subparagraphs or anything in it. It's just three right. paragraphs in a row. Right. They're not. They're not even labeled. So in our briefs, where I was referring to is the second paragraph, as opposed to to. Well, she gonna do. Yeah. Um, but you know the. The, the first paragraph talks about gestational age not being um, relevant with respect to bringing a, a wrongful death cause of action um, for harm to a child that's not yet born. Um, and then there's two paragraphs. After that's that. not really an issue here. That It only gets implicated tangentially in terms of when we try and look at the language of the statute as a whole and try and figure out what it was that they were trying to do. But the, the exact language of that paragraph is not at issue. Our issue is with respect to the second and third paragraphs where they start talking about um, when, uh, I guess a good way to say it is when or when not can you bring a claim with respect to, um, to a fetal injury. And the third paragraph talks about uh, physicians and whether in the, in the um, exercise of medical care they knew or had reason to know that someone was pregnant. And the third paragraph makes clear that if somebody, if, if a doctor does not know or does not have reason to know that someone is pregnant, that there's not a cause of action for, um, for harm to the unborn child. The second paragraph is where it, there's a lot of dispute as to what it actually means. Um, and there's some very subtle shifts in language between um, the second and third paragraph that get very technical. Um, but they it talks about um, a cause of action for wrongful death as a result of uh, an abortion that's lawfully performed and where... Um, where the requisite consent is given. Um, and Which is what happened here. It was both legal and consented to. That's exactly right. Yeah, there, there's no issue that, uh, that it wasn't done properly or that you know, she did not consent to the procedure or know what the procedure was. Um, that's, that's not an issue. The issue in the case, I think what it comes down to is, you know, did the legislature intend that to extend beyond the physicians who are performing the abortion? Um, does it meet, does it extend beyond physicians? Does it extend beyond, you know, there's other cases where, um, people are, are bringing claims against negligent drivers and, you know, does this, uh, does this reach those claims? Does it prevent a wrongful death action where, um, where there's injury to the fetus before the fetus is born and ultimately that pregnant 
pregnancy is terminated by a lawful consensual abortion. Were the doctors who performed the surgery also the doctors who performed the abortion, or was it a different set of doctors? No, that, those were different doctors that performed the, the actual abortion. All right. And so with that, we're going to take our first break and be back and talk about, uh, pick up about the procedural posture, uh, which we've talked about a little bit um, in the trial court. And we're back with segment two with our special guests, Ed Grasse and Christopher Willis, uh, with respect to Thomas versus Corey. And Ed, what was the procedural posture of the case in the trial court? Uh, you mentioned, you know, that it uh, never was any discovery. Uh, and so presume it went right into the motion to dismiss here. Yeah, it's actually a, an interesting procedural posture on this. Um, when we first filed the complaint, uh, there was a, a motion to dismiss, which was granted. Uh, and the, the motion, the original motion to dismiss was brought on the grounds of this, the, 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 the uh, section 2.2 of the wrongful death act and the implications of the light case. Um, the reasons that motion to dismiss were granted are kind of irrelevant here. Um, but that, was that motion, initial motion a six one five or a six one nine? What was it? It was a six one nine, but it was it was in an odd sequence of events. We we weren't actually there that day <laughs> when the motion was granted, um, and then but we were given leave to amend. It's a it's an odd way that it happened, but either way, the motion was granted. Um, we were expecting a briefing schedule uh, that day. Anyway, so the motion's granted. Oh, you guys had agreed to a briefing schedule. The judge just went ahead and granted the motion. Not not agreed. We it was it was it's a long story, but there was we weren't there. We were expecting a briefing schedule. Didn't happen. Dismiss. Leave to amend. Okay. Um, the the defendant's expectation was that we were going to amend and eliminate the wrongful death claim, uh, but instead what we did is we amended and made more concrete allegations as to the injury to the fetus. And the the basis for our claim under the Wrongful Death Act. What did they think you were going to plead instead of wrongful death? Right. Well, I think they just figured that the way the light case reads, that it's so definitive in their minds that there was no chance to plead anything else. Uh, to the point that when we filed the amended complaint, um, alleging you know more facts as to the wrongful death, they then filed a motion to dismiss and ask for sanctions for us repleting it. Um, Anyway, so that was brought in and we fully briefed that motion before Judge Ehrlich. Uh, he asked for further briefing on the implications between paragraph two and paragraph three. Um, and we then uh, raised further briefing on that, which led to his order, uh, which I'm sure I'm, I'm sure you've seen that his original order and his 308 language giving the, the, the you know, permissive appeal up to the appellate court. So, so what brings me right to where I wanted to go next, which is how did the, we talked a little bit about this on the show the other day, but uh, Christopher, how did the certified question get drafted? Was there any input from the lawyers um, or, or did we understand it correctly that Judge Ehrlich wrote this 308 question sua sponte and said, this is what we're going to do? 
you did understand that correctly. That's that's exactly what happened. He had done. I get one right. Outstanding. Yeah, he had done extensive research him, himself, including the legislative history, and asked um, for a briefing from us um, with respect to the legislative history that he had already researched as well. Um, and so that was done. And so as he was drafting his order, um, he on his own recognized that this was a 308A question. It's a, a significant question significant grounds for difference of opinion. Um, and everybody agreed that whether this claim was in or out on this case was going to make a, a tremendous difference in terms of the direction the case was going to take. And so. Absolutely. Um, so, the heart so, of it. So, so many questions here. Ed, Ed, you wanted to add something to what Christopher just said. I, well, I, I did want to add, I don't want to make it sound as if Judge Ehrlich never requested input. He, when he drafted his order, he put the question directly into the opinion said, this is my suggested question, and I'm giving you leave. We did appear in court, and he asked if we had wanted to make any changes to it, and we all agreed that the question as written is is probably a very good statement of what the question should be. Uh, so he did draft the question and didn't ask us to submit it, which is the way it normally uh, the, the way we're normally used to it. Yeah, know, usually the lawyers are the ones drafting it. Right. And and the either there's competing decides. questions or there's a dispute about it and the, and the court rules on it as opposed to the judge saying, without a suggestion from the parties, this is what we're going to do. What do you guys think about this question? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and, thanks and then for clarifying there, that. I hadn't gotten to that point. Yet. And then was there briefing on whether the um, appellate court would hear it? Because their leave also has to be given, the appellate court has to agree was there briefing on that, or did the defendants agree that the uh, appellate court should take the question? They filed the 308 request, and we agreed. Oh, they filed that. it. Okay. Correct. Yeah, because we had won the motion. The judge ruled in our favor, um, and he drafted the question. And then we, uh, in response to their request for a 308 appeal, we agreed that this is a question that should be heard by the appellate court. Um, we gave consideration to whether or not to contest it, but the likelihood of that <laughs> being a successful uh, objection was was so slim that it just made sense to just say, let's have the appellate court look at it. And I so, think it, with respect to that, part of our, our discussion was, you know, this is not this is not a well-kept secret. We knew that this case was going to end up in the appellate court one way or another as soon as we started looking at it. Um, sure. There was just it this it this issue um, and the fact that we really believed that we could bring this claim and and we're we're going to pursue it. We knew that that would end in the appellate court, no matter what. So, so, so a couple questions procedurally, because Illinois we have we have we haven't really talked about this on the show, but for those that aren't familiar with Illinois procedure, Illinois though it has five districts has one appellate court, and this 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 light case that you've referred to is from the third district. Of course, Cook County, uh, Judge Ehrlich is in the first district. But if there's only one case that controls it and there's no Supreme Court case, he's bound by light. What what was there any did he have any uh, what did he say about that uh, with regards to uh, what he thought, whether he thought light was controlling or if he thought it was distinguishable or what did he say about that? The main issue, especially he considering raised, he, especially considering he granted or he denied their motion to dismiss, so he must have found something that told him light wasn't controlling. It, it was the implications of the third paragraph that were not addressed anywhere in light. Um, in the light case, uh, in its analysis of this issue, only looked at and addressed the language of the second paragraph. Our facts and the way we pled the cause of action and were proceeding 
was implicating directly the third paragraph. Um, and, and therefore, Judge Ehrlich's position was that light isn't on all fours with this case because of that, the implications of the third paragraph, which go directly to the way that he drafted the certified question, which, as you guys heard, that came up in the argument of the way he drafted it and what's the implications for a decision here when both paragraphs are in, uh, implicated. You know, the defendants only want you to see paragraph two and just pretend paragraph three doesn't exist, but paragraph three exists. And, you know, we have a situation where we directly alleged malpractice on the ha on behalf of the physicians who knew or had, you know, good, good medical, medical reason, reason. <laughs> that she was pregnant. Right. Or at least there are some strong indications she was pregnant. Dan, once you... Sure. So, so Ed, why don't you tell us what happened at the appellate court? We've talked about it. It went to the appellate court on the certified question. What happened at that level? Uh, so there was obviously the briefing on that. Um, there was no amicus involvement at the appellate level. Uh, there was oral arguments uh, before the uh, the first district. Um, and then there was uh, the 3-0 ruling that led to, you know, the, the first Thomas versus Corey opinion. And that opinion... Um, uh, we can go through any part of that if you'd like, but the uh, that was the end result of that. And then the, the PLA was brought to the Supreme Court. So the appellate court affirmed ju uh, Judge Ehrlich's ruling that you guys could proceed based upon the based upon the question that was asked. Correct. I think what was most interesting about the appellate court was that was uh, and specifically in the oral argument, at the appellate court, that was the first time that we got a really clear and definitive statement from the defendants of the exact contours of the position that they were taking with respect to Section 2.2 and specifically their position that no matter what the malpractice is or who causes it or how far along, uh, how grave the injury is to a fetus, if the pregnancy ultimately ends as a result of an abortion that's a consented and, legal to it's consented. lawful and consensual right there is absolutely no claim that can be maintained on uh, there are, and that there are no exceptions to that as they read the statute um, that it does not matter even if the uh the person who performs the abortion is the doctor who did who did the malpractice previously you know their which, position which, which is seems it's absolute immunity then for the for the doctors that caused the harm. Exactly, and I and I know you both listened to the the oral argument um, in the Supreme Court, and you know they took that position as well. And the judges seemed interested in in whether or not um, it was their their position that this was an absolute, as as Justice Tice I believe said, a categorical ban. Uh, that paragraph two was a categorical ban on maintaining a, a wrongful death action with respect to an injury to a fetus if at the end of the pregnancy there is a lawful consensual abortion and that was that was i think because of you know the way that it went through that was first made clear um at the oral argument in the first district when the when um defendant's attorney was pressed on that point and with that we'll take our second break and come back for our last segment with ed grisset and christopher willis talking about the thomas versus Corey case Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. 
You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back on segment three with Ed Grisey and Christopher Willis talking about Thomas versus Corey. And I want to pick up uh, where we left off um, with the this claim that the defendants have made that there is essentially an absolute immunity under the statute when there is a death as a result of the legal consented to abortion. Were you surprised at that hard line position that the appellant took first at the first district in the oral argument and then uh, certainly doubled down on it at the uh, um, at the oral argument in the Supreme Court? Surprised? No, because I, I think in the end, it's the only argument they have. And the only way they can look at it, I mean, the light case is, you know, technically up until this case, the light case was in their favor uh, and was relatively clear that a, an abortion, um, you know, ends the, the, the question under Section 2.2 when only when you look at paragraph two. Uh, I, I think what was surprising is is how much at the appellate court they the, the justices had to push and prod to get to that point. Um, but it, it's, it's that argument that, that this is an, an absolute bar um, to, a, to a claim if there's an abortion that, that really demonstrates to me why, you know, what I let off the argument, I, I refer to this as legally indefensible. Um, it, it's, it, it makes no sense to conclude that nothing else matters prior to the abortion, if that's what happens. There's a wrongful death cause of action in, in any number of scenarios, but as soon as an abortion happens, it's the, the wrongful death case goes away. It, it just doesn't make any sense, you know, but the light case, because it was in their favor, they have no choice but to argue that, right? So your next question was, what about at the Supreme Court that they doubled down on it? And I'd, I'd say they, that's probably a, an accurate way of saying it, but I don't know that they had a choice but to do that because we pointed out in our brief and even cited to the oral argument where that's what the argument led to. And eventually counsel admitted that that's, the, that's our position. If there's an abortion, everything else before that doesn't matter. And, and that, uh, the, the Supreme Court justices seem to be struggling with that. They kept asking about whether the argument was is that paragraph two uh, kind of overtook paragraph three of, of 2.2, right? And, and there's a lot of question about that and kind of pushback, it seemed like. Right. And I think that plays into, as we were talking earlier, about the, the, the nature of the certified question and how that plays into having both paragraphs implicated, where they just want to look at paragraph two and say that that's the end of the, the argument. The, the, there obviously is a, a discussion because of the, as you both said. I mean, both you and Mr. Grant, who argued for the appellants, the defendants below, um, about statutory construction. I mean, you're both talking about what does this statute mean? And they made, they tried to make a light, a lot of the fact the light's been on the books for a while. Um, how did you guys address that in your briefs that the, um, that the uh, legislature in light of light hasn't done anything in however many years and, uh, you know, we kind of, I, I kind of said, I thought that was weak tea on the, uh, on, 
on the podcast the other day, but how did you guys deal with that in your brief? Because you really didn't have an opportunity to address that head on at the oral argument. It's, it's, it's technically a favorable argument for the defense because it is a true fact. The light case came out in the early 90s and nothing's been done to correct it. If the legislature thought the light case was wrong, they, they could have done something with it. But uh, in the briefs, the primary argument uh, on that point was essentially that the fact that they haven't done anything is not dispositive of the legislative intent, that it doesn't, it's, it's a factor, it's something you can look at, but it's not dispositive as to the intent. Um, well, it certainly the, doesn't shed any light on what the intent was of the legislature that passed it. Correct. I mean, it, it was passed decades prior in the wake of Roe, I imagine, and, 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 and for entirely different reasons. That has nothing to do with what happened 15 or 20 years later when you, when you get the, when the light decision comes down. It, I mean, just because some legislature since then doesn't mean that tells you what the legislature was doing back in the 70s. And with respect to the light decision, I think it's important to, to realize the fact that the le- legislature did not amend the statute in response to light does not necessarily mean that the, the legislature thinks that light means what the defendants mean. It could mean that the legislature right. read light and thinks it means exactly what the first district in our case means and that it can be squared you know, without, without overturning them. Um, and that's, that's the position that we take uh, you know, with respect to our case um, and that we took in our briefs and, and that Ed took before the court, which is that it is not necessary to overturn light to uphold the first district. And, and we understand that, you know, uh, Amicus Council took a different position with respect to um, what they think should happen for light. And, and we respect their views uh, on that. But as as advocates for Monique and Chris and, and Baby Doe, you know, our position is uh, that it is not necessary to undo light in order to um, in order to to find in our client's favor. It just needs to be read within the context of what it does and does not say. And, and I have a very big exclusion to that statement. Unless this court reads light the way the defendants do. 100%. If they read light the way the defendants do, then every day of the week, overturn light if you think that's what it says. Yep. And, and Christopher, you mentioned uh, the, the, the amicus brief. What, what role do you expect that the, the brief filed by ITLA uh, in support of your position will play, if any, in the overall decision and where this turns out? That and for, and for those that aren't right. familiar, ITLA is the Illinois Trial Lawyers Association. That's the plaintiff's bar organization uh, here in Illinois. Go, go ahead, Christopher. You know, that question to me is one of the biggest mysteries um, that I have with respect to this case and, and wondering, did the Supreme Court take this case up because um, it's a hot button issue? It's a, a, an interesting social issue. Did they take it up because they saw an opportunity to overturn light uh, because they saw that courts were perhaps reading light um, to be more broad in its in its ruling than than what the Supreme Court viewed. I don't know. You know, I, I think it'll be very interesting to see um, the extent to which the the arguments that ITLA has raised in their amicus brief are grappled with um, and how much of that makes it into to the analysis. I think that the uh, the, the amicus brief is is very well done and raises a really excellent point in laying out a series of different hypothetical cases. You know, if you have a fetal injury and the, the, the fetus dies before birth as a result of that fetal injury, it's clear everyone agrees there is a medical malpractice case for that, wrongful death, 
med mal action. If you have a fetal injury that happens in utero, the child dies from an afterbirth. It's clear that there's a medical malpractice case for that. Um, and they lay through all these different scenarios and making it clear that the developed body of law with respect to wrongful death actions for fetal injuries is consistent throughout. And the reading of Section 2.2 urged by defendants in this case would be a radical outlier of all of a sudden there's just one specific type of claim um, that the outcome is completely different for reasons that I don't think have a lot of basis in logic um, or or is certainly not within the statutory language and certainly not within um, the legislative history in terms of the discussion of what the goal of Section 2.2 was. So it'll be interesting to see what, uh, if anything, the Illinois Supreme Court says about those other situations and how they view that as being persuasive with respect to um, what it means for Monique and Chris and Baby Doe's claims. By the way, people, you don't get to take a sip when the guest says interesting. Only when Dan and I say interesting. We're That's trying right. to get you drunk. But yeah. that's quite interesting, Pat. It's, it's, again, <laughs> it doesn't count, folks. And, and it will uh, it will be interesting to see that Does there's that once. It will be interesting to see you know why the Supreme Court took this case and what the opportunity is and, and, and how this case turns out. And uh, mm -hmm. very interesting. And on behalf of Pat uh, and myself, we thank you, Ed and Christopher, for joining us to talk about this uh, very important case. And uh, Christopher, as you mentioned, you know, these are cases that uh, the Supreme Court typically doesn't take a lot of politically active or charged kind of these types of cases. So uh, very interesting to see how the court rules on this. And with that, we thank you for this uh, listening for this podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. And thanks for having us on. Thanks, fellas. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients. <laughs>